0: Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Hey. Welcome to CCF. My name is Reed, for those of you who don't know me. I have been around Truman since 2003. Uh, still here. Still love it. Still love being here. Been in this room for a long time. Um, every now and again, I get the urge to, when I preach a sermon, instead of preaching it like a normal sermon, I feel like the best way for it to come out of me is via like a letter to one of my sons, uh, and then I will read you that letter, and you will hear it as my son, <laughs> as my child. Uh, slash, you know, you can still pretend it's a sermon. It, you know, it's, it's a fuzzy line. Um, and tonight, we're, so we've been doing the Sermon on the Mount, and we are in chapter 6, and there's this passage here, which I'll read to you from Matthew chapter 6. It's up here on the screen, actually. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Oh, yeah, I'll go back to the titles in a second. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Have you guys heard this passage before? So there's a, I I was reading Luke kind of has his own version of the Sermon on the Mount, but it's, he takes like the different pieces that Matthew has and he kind of breaks them out and spreads them around and they get put in a different order with different things around them. Uh, and when you get to, so the very next section after this is do not be anxious. I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, your body, what you will wear, your food, what you will eat. Um, that section exists almost verbatim in Luke and it immediately follows a parable and the parable talks about laying up treasures in heaven but it's the parable of the guy with the barns. Do you know this one where he's like gets a bunch of crops and he's like, I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns. And then God's like, you fool this night I'm taking your life from you. And whose will it be what you have gotten? Um, and so I like thinking of this is the like instructional form of the teaching. And then Jesus also has like a parable version of this same. It's the same point. It's the same idea, same teaching, but he tells it in a parable form. And when I preached this parable, uh, three years ago or whatever it was. We did a series on the parables, which still remains one of my most favorites of all time. Uh, I had that parable of the rich fool and I wrote it as a letter to my son, Briggs. And so I was like, you know what? I think it's time for another letter. So this one's going to be uh, for Jack. Um, and it's pretend future Jack, like he's just graduated from college. You'll pick that up from the context. I don't actually have a son who has graduated from college yet, so don't be confused about that. But I do have a son named Jack. He's sitting right back there with my wife, Leanne, and my other son, Graham. Jack, do you want to? Yep, there he is. Right there. So friendly. Um, okay, so we're going to get into it. Will you turn off the light now? This is This is me going into dad mode. Can I move the lamp over a little bit? What is wrong with you? All right, so this is Belly Hearts, or Scrooge on the Mount, or a treasure map letter to my son, or a parable in instruction costume. Dear Jack, holy cow, a college graduate and already with your first career job, while I'm thinking of it and now that you're abroad, don't forget that we're doing a Christmas carol at the KC Rep again this year, so make your travel plans now. You've worked really hard to get where you are. You always have, and I'm proud of you as I've always been. Honest to goodness, I've never met a more self-controlled and self-disciplined person than you. I remember when you were 11 and you had saved $241 just from refusing to spend birthday and Christmas money from previous years, and now the only thing you actually had spent your own money on at that point was new cleats so you could get better at soccer. Those qualities have now put you in a position to begin a challenging and rewarding career. Pretty soon you're going to start getting paychecks, and from here on you'll be living in the world of money. I know when you were in school you were basically destitute, as all college students are, poor, homeless. But suddenly that's the past. You're going to enter a world with many new questions and concerns that you're going to have to answer in concrete ways. What will you do with your feelings? when your best college friends and roommates who were poor with you all those years start to earn an order of magnitude more dollars than you? What will you do with the ethical concerns surrounding investments? What kind of a house will you live in now that you're the one choosing it? How will you walk the line of taking money seriously without being co- becoming consumed by it? What will change once you have a family of your own? You don't need me to tell you that in an affluent society like ours, money is a daily concern. There's no getting away from it, no matter how you feel about it. Of course, your thoughts and feelings will change over time, but it's better to give thought and act from conviction now than just wing it and see where you end up. Let me start with Frederick Beekner. I know, I know, some things never change. He said there are people who use up their entire lives making money so that they can enjoy the lives they have entirely used up. You know them. The ones who sacrifice, what do I call it? They sacrifice, well, goodness, I guess, and tell themselves they'll finally settle in for it once they can, once they reach a certain net worth or have so many dollars or whatever. I know people like this, and Beekner's right, of course. The very sad and tricky thing about the whole business is that despite a mountain of cautionary tales piled higher than Scrooge's gold, they don't see it until it's too late. There's a book of fables I used to read as a kid by Arnold Lobel, the frog and toad guy. I read it to you sometimes, too. There was one story in there about frogs chasing a rainbow into the cave for a pot of gold. One frog gets wind of it and tells another and then another, and the three of them run together, certain they'll be rich in no time, only to find a snake hiding in the cave that gobbles them up. Wealth is alluring and deceptive, Jack. Jack promising much but often slyly taking more than it delivers it seems no matter how many times we've been warned in how many ways many of us still fall for it anyway why do we do that why do we chase so hard after money why do we lay up all these trinkets why do we accumulate solely for the sake of having more why are we the only species that has collections Yes, mom is looking over my shoulder and just made a comment about board games. I think it's because maybe we don't know what life really is. We don't pay attention to it or look for where it's hidden. So we look for it in visible places, our shelves, our closets, our accounts. Jesus said, be careful. His life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. And I think he said this because he knew this tendency in every heart to become convinced that what we're earning with our lawn mowing money or part-time jobs or careers is our lives. Not just paychecks for a house or cars or vacations, but our very lives. And it starts young if you're not careful. The thrill when you buy a new jersey or nice cleats as you always love to do. And when that means that what you're buying is life itself. We think what we buy will somehow make something of us. Make us real. Make us more. Make us powerful. Make our lives worth the effort. Honestly, it's hard not to think that. The message is everywhere. It's in the toy catalogs and on Sunday Night Football and at the career fair at Truman. Our things will legitimize and sustain us. But remember, Jesus points out that the stuff we spend so much time obsessing about is going to rot and be eaten before long anyway. It won't last. Can't make you what you want to be. The watch rusts, the cleats fall apart, the couch goes out of style, the car breaks down, the empire turns to dust. We know they don't last, but we keep going. Do we believe an endless succession of them will do the trick? Is it worth it? What have these things demanded of us? What have they demanded of you already? Money, of course, but what has the required money required of us? I think maybe we're like Mickey and the Sorcerer's Apprentice, Jack, how he had to clean the workshop, but he got tired of hauling buckets of water. So when the Sorcerer left, Mickey used his magic to bewitch the mop to carry the water and do the cleaning for him. Before long, however, the mop multiplied and got out of control, and the workshop was flooded and a never-ending flow of buckets being dumped all over the floor. Mickey thought magic would work for him, but in the end, it ended up out of his control, and it ruined everything. We tell ourselves, we like to tell ourselves, all along the path of acquisition and wealth earning that money is a tool and that we are in control. You'll find lots of people in life who know that Jesus said we cannot serve two masters, cannot. Lots of them claim to serve God. No one ever claims to serve money. Of course they don't. Serving money isn't anything anyone sets out to do, but it's something that happens gradually until suddenly we realize it once it's too late. One thing I've seen, Jack, is that it's not only rich folks and excessive spenders who drop $100,000 on cars or whatever who may be mastered by money. People can also be mastered by it in the name of thriftiness. Mom and I have done this, I think, Christmases, birthdays, parties. It's not that it's bad to be careful about going overboard, but when someone's every thought is of saving dollars and cents and getting the best deals on everything, couldn't we say that they too have been mastered? A rich person can harm their poor neighbor by ignoring their need, but a frugal person can harm their shop-owning neighbor by insisting that they'll never pay full asking price for anything. Bonanzas or bargains, we can be mastered either way. I can almost hear you asking me then, Dad, what am I supposed to think? If it's not inherently good to have little, is it inherently bad to have much? I've always loved how logical your brain is. keeps our arguments interesting. No, of course not. It's not inherently bad to have much. Deuteronomy looks forward to a time when God's people would have their own land and their own fill of food and drink and live in their own fine houses. I wrote a letter about this to Briggs a few years ago when we still lived in our little brick house on Lewis Street, and I remember mentioning how that house only had about 1,200 square feet. We've since moved to a fine house more than twice as big, so I hope it's not inherently bad to have much. I could be deluding myself, though. It happens all the time. Which is why that same dream of abundance in Deuteronomy also carries a warning. Be careful, lest you forget forget God. Because the thing is that being mastered by money is less a conscious decision to serve it and more an unconscious forgetting to serve God. And it seems that it really is just easier to forget God when you've got more. It makes sense. The comfort and leisure can pull you away from him, but also the anxiety about how you're going to keep it all afloat. We have to remember that it's him who gives us bodies with strength and brains with intelligence that are capable of earning wealth in the first place and who keeps giving that ability as long as we have it and who can take it away. With such a capacity to forget God and to trick ourselves about who we are serving, how do we know where our hearts really are? Jesus said, look where your money's going. Who's it being used for? Where your treasure is, there you'll find your heart. For many of us, as I told Briggs, the sad truth is that our hearts are in our freaking barns. They're in our phones, our travel packages, our book collections, our shoes, our retirement packages, and investment portfolios. We are shutting up our hearts in these silly, tiny vessels. And it's sad because while sometimes it feels like we want too much, the truth is that we want too little. We're settling for dollars and things when we could have something more valuable. Jack, a heart as miraculous and beautiful as yours and every person made in God's image is just way too much to try to store in this stuff. Where can it go then, your treasure, your heart? Jesus said, instead, lay up treasures in heaven. Now, when I was growing up, Pastors told me that if I obeyed God, I would be adding actual jewels and other nice things into a treasure chest somewhere up there. Let me tell you, I don't know much of anything about what is in heaven, but I do know that this idea now seems very weird to me. The driving motivation is still getting fancy things. Does it seem that way to you? The only thing that's changed is when and where you get them. Take or leave God as necessary. It's like a heavenly consumerism. But we want God to be at the center, the beginning and the end of what we do, not treasure. So what does Jesus mean? I know the Bible is confusing, but we can make it a little less so if we remember that Jesus really was a human and a Jewish human at that. I'm always trying to remind the Truman students of that. So think for a second. You and I are Americans, which means that we think American thoughts, like we got to buy gifts for Christmas, and we eat American food, cheeseburgers, your favorite, and we say American things like, Monday morning quarterbacks who jump on the team bandwagon are a dime a dozen. I don't really know who says that, but because you're American and like football, you know what I mean when I say it, but if we ask some of the kids at the I house what that means, I bet we'd get lots of entertaining answers the same way, since Jesus really was Jewish, he thought Jewish thoughts and ate Jewish food and said Jewish things like lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And just like an international student can't make any sense of my American sentence if they take it literally, so we can't make any sense of Jesus saying if we imagine pirate chests in the clouds. Remember to read the Bible how I taught you, Jack. So what did he mean? It's really not complicated. It's a figure of speech and it meant give to the poor. So, Jack, Jesus is saying it's a fool's errand to hoard a bunch of things, because that's not what life is, and it all fades in the end anyway. But instead, we ought to give freely to the needs of others, especially those in need. It's a better safe deposit box than our collections and accounts. Like what this guy Augustine said about the character in that parable with the huge barns, the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. Can you see how it becomes a treasure that doesn't get destroyed by moth and rust? Not because it's literally being consumed by someone else before it has a chance to mold, but because what that giving does is create a bond of love and inclusion and grace between you and others. Your money becomes a conduit for mercy. And what better way is there to remember God than to take care of the ones he never forgets? One thing I hear from college students and others who don't have any money is about what they'd like to do with money once they have it. Even now, you, at the beginning of your career, not yet at peak earning potential, may think the same thing. There's always this tendency to link generosity to resource reserves. Once I've got these things taken care of, then I can give. Just think of what I'll be able to do when I can give $1,000. I have friends now who make lots and lots of money and some of them are very generous, but none of them has told me that giving is any more satisfying now that it's in thousands instead of tens. They loved it then as they do now. The person you are with little is the person you are with much. A generous heart is what matters and it doesn't really care about volume. So, Jack, start freely giving now. One Jewish sage said, more or less, that it's better to give $10 a thousand times than $10,000 all at once, because each time you give, you become a kinder person. So maybe even if you can give $10,000 all at once, you should instead look for a thousand chances to give 10. Here's the last thing I want to tell you. Faithfulness with money in an affluent society is a lifelong wrestling match. And in the real world, there aren't many pat answers you have to keep revisiting, keep asking, keep remaining open to the spirits prompting. Yes, we moved from a smaller house to a bigger house. And yes, we struggled long with that question. In the end, though, it was still, I hope, in an effort to lay up treasure in heaven, to make our home a home where many others can find their way in and feel at home. Friends, grandparents, families, guests, strangers, teammates, That's the kind of stuff you have to keep looking at. Not just what you have, but how you're using it, who it's for, who it's causing you to serve. Keep honest and lifelong friends around you who can tell you when you're starting to forget. You won't be perfect at it, but you have to try because money is no light thing. Another strange Jewish thing Jesus said was, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Some say Jesus simply means that if your eyes don't work, you won't be able to see. Okay. Some say Jesus is giving an esoteric teaching about becoming spiritually enlightened with through a third eye. Neither of those is very Jewish. Wouldn't you know it? In Jesus' time, there was a figure of speech about eyes, and it actually had everything to do with money. For them, having a good eye or a healthy eye, as Jesus says, simply meant being a charitable and generous person. Having a bad or unhealthy eye simply meant being a Scrooge. Notice what Jesus does with these sayings. Your eye, which is to say how generous or stingy you are, becomes something that affects your whole self, allowing either light or darkness into the depths of who you are. What you choose to do with your money really does shape the way you see pretty much everything. Is there abundance or scarcity? Does God care for you or must you look out for yourself? Is God generous or Scroogey? Do possessions sustain and substantiate you or does God? When you start to see possessions as life itself and then hold on to everything for dear life, you walk into darkness. When you trust God and let your stuff pass freely to those around you, you walk into the light. And it is beautiful and magical and so, so joyous when you walk in that light, hands open to those around you, freely giving as you freely receive. Man, the Christmas carol really is the light of the gospel on a theater stage. If you become anything like me as you get older, you will stray in and out of darkness when it comes to money. But remember my favorite psalm, even the darkness is as light to God. Even if you plunge into the depths of greed and consumerism like Scrooge, there's nowhere that his insane generosity and goodness won't come find you and pull you out. He will always keep giving you grace, the grace of forgiveness, the grace to take what he has given you and let it be something he is giving someone else through you, the grace to give away the biggest turkey in the butcher shop window. I love you, Dad. And now, may we let God take our hearts out of our things, and may we let him put our treasures into the ones around us, And may we be full of his light. Let's pray. Our hands are open, Lord. I don't know where it comes from, what it is that that hook down in that feels to tug away whenever the inclination comes to just give something away and be generous. The nagging voice that says there is something to worry about. We're all going to die, and all of our stuff is going to rot. That is really true. Would you help us here in the meantime uh, to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven to take joy in giving to those around us? Would you help us to walk in trust with courage, not to be afraid, not to be anxious, to know that you care for us Amen.